0: WMQA Hello and welcome to WMQ and A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week's guest is Brian Edward Hill, who Oh boy, this was an amazing episode to record. Uh, I didn't fan out in front of him or anything, but my god, he's cool. Uh, we talk about his run on Detective Comics and the upcoming Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, we talk about the Black Lightning, uh, Hong Kong Fooey one-shot and uh, Michael Cray. And we talk about his upcoming Vertigo series, American Carnage, and how he likes to amass research just in case it comes in handy, uh, doing things like small arms training and going undercover on white supremacist message boards, you know, like you do. Uh, Joining me this time around is Matt Lazowitz, WMQ Comics resident batmanologist. Uh, Matt's going to be joining me on some more shows coming up, so keep your ears open for his dulcet tones. Uh, Speaking of Matt, over at WMQComics.com, we're in the middle of a Pod People two-parter in which he talks with the hosts of Smash Fiction, an awesome podcast that pits characters from across the vast reaches of fiction against each other and debates the outcome. Uh, part one went up last week. Part two will go up on the site Tuesday. Uh, Matt also just wrote about four lesser-known Vertigo series worth checking out from creators like Garth Ennis, Ed Brubaker, and Matt Wagner. And I'll have an advanced review up on the site about Warren Ellis and Jason Howard's Cemetery Beach. So check out all that content over at WMQComics.com. And if you like what you're reading, seeing, and hearing, consider telling a friend or backing us on Patreon. Uh, Now here's me, Matt, and Brian. Well, uh, Brian, we generally like to start off by asking guests about the comics they remember reading when they first got into the medium. But uh, in doing research for this podcast, you've pretty much been Team Batman since the beginning, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, well, I have, really. You know, I... I can't remember the like the first comic that I got, but um, my like, but the first really like powerful comic book memory is associated with Batman for sure because that was a uh, that was the day I found out my dad died and I went to a comic book store and I picked up an issue of Batman just you know by instinct and really connected to Bruce Wayne then I was about man I was probably nine years old. Around there, uh, maybe eight years old around there, um, and so that was like yeah, that was like the first like real powerful experience I can remember. Um, but you know, but I I read a bunch of things growing up like you know Captain America, action comics, uh, um, Spider Man. You know, I was really big into the McFarlane run on Spider Man. Sure. Um, and then you know we you you start to get a little older, and I was uh, I was lucky because comics were maturing not maturing I shouldn't say that but comics were expanding their possibilities in the form as I was getting introduced to literature. Mm -hmm. So as my mind was getting hungrier for uh, more layers inside of storytelling, those things were being offered in comics. You know, the Arkham Asylums and the uh, Dark Knight Returns, those things. Uh, Batman the Cult, um, Electra Assassin, like all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So those were really the formative books that made me want to. I didn't think about writing comics, but they did get me into the idea of being a storyteller uh, because they were they're really powerful experiences. You know, they're the kind of books that you you read. Like if you read, you know, Dark Knight Returns, and you're sitting there, you're reading it. You know, you'll turn a page, and some Frank Miller poetry will hit some uh, really intense artwork, and little explosions go off in your head and they go off in your heart and you feel like you're going to look up and everyone can see what you're going through because you're having such a moment with the work, right? Like there's no way this could be happening in silence. Like everyone has to know what I'm experiencing right now. Ain't no one does just reading a book. It's an intimate experience. But, uh, that really made me consider maybe storytelling. I mean, I still wanted to be in the FBI and catch bad guys, but (laughs) I, I did start thinking about it, uh, from, from reading those works. Like those things burned little moments into my brain.
0: That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Matt is our uh, resident bat expert. Uh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. Yep. Many, many years of, I, I was about nine when I started reading Batman myself. So I'm, I'm right there with you on that. Um, I mean, detective must've been a, a dream gig then. Did you know how, how much of, of Batman and the outsiders was there when you either pitched the book or DC pitched it to you, was that something you knew about going in?
1: Well, well, honestly, Detective, uh, I never thought I would write Batman. I never thought about writing Batman. Um, you know, there, there are three franchises that I just never consider working on. Uh, Batman, Star Wars, and James Bond. I, I love all of them. But I just never thought I'd do anything in them. So it wasn't like I had this candle flame of a dream of writing Batman comics. I, you know, I, I enjoyed Batman. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I was certainly like super, you know, into the movies and the books and all that. But I just never really thought I'd wind up doing it. Um, so the call that I got from DC really came out of the blue. Cause I figured you had to do big two comics for a long time before you would even get considered as someone that could write that man. Uh, and I just like, well, I haven't, so that's nothing to think about. Um, but when they first talked to me about it, they did mention black lightning. Um, and they didn't say the outsiders, but as someone who's read a comic book before, <laughs> when, when you start putting black lightning and batman in the same comic book the mind goes to certain places right yes. so uh maybe about like the third issue in, we started to have some outsiders conversations i didn't start them you know they started them and then we went back and forth and discussed who would be on the team um what my approach would be but i didn't know if i was really doing it while i was writing those issues of detective <laughs> i was just having conversations and I fully expected to write my five issues and then someone else, uh, with more of a legacy in big two comics would come in and, uh, they would do it. Um, so it was really just me. Well, you know, if I were to do it, I suppose I would do this and I would I'd want to do that. And I would want to have this tone. Um, and then, you know, near the end of, uh, not the, not the books written, but when the third issue I think was getting drawn, I got invited to that DC summit, um, uh, that I went to, uh, it was, it was held in LA this year. And How was the I was commute? like, okay, well that's, <laughs> it, it was all right. You know, just, I was just coming from my place. So it wasn't so bad. Um, but it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to this thing. And then, you know, I saw in the email outsiders and I was like, oh, I guess this is a thing, huh? Uh, <laughs> and, and the, the, the most terrifying part about it is because I didn't know whether or not I was doing it. I didn't really have a, a pitch. Because it was just conversations, it was just impressions, you know. I just had sketches of uh, various things I might do. But I realized after being there for about 90 minutes that it was going to uh, fall on me to stand in front of Brian Bendis and Kelly Sue DeConnick and Brian Azzarello and Jim Lee and Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns and talk as if I knew what I was (laughs) going (laughs) to do.
2: Just, you know, just a bunch of guys, you you know, talk to any old day of the week at a bar.
1: Right, right. So I was like, "Oh, oh, is that Tom King? Oh, awesome! I get to make a fool out of myself in front of everyone at the same time. This is this is a really efficient way to end your comic book career." And I was sitting next to Benjamin Percy. I don't know if you got to talk to Percy yet. Not yet. Um, but he's Loved. a great guy. He's got a, he's a, this is a, this is a solid solid dude, and he's got like one of those like you know real low like kind of Sam Elliott voices. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I, all right, well, I, I, I was talking to Ben. I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's like, oh, man, just get, get up there and tell him what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Percy has spoken. <laughs> so, that booming voice from on high. I that guy, <laughs> yeah, I can't let that guy down. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, and, and that's that's how that happened.
0: So, you know, social media wise, you know, I'm sure there were fans who read those first couple of issues and, and, you know, the wheels start turning and they're like, oh, you're transitioning to Batman and the Outsiders, right? And at first you have to be like, I no, that's no, there's been no discussion of that. And then there's like a shift to where you're kind of, okay, this is happening. But obviously, you know, we're not allowed to announce for a certain, you know, until like three months out. So now I have to start playing coy. Uh, Was that was that a challenge or was that fun for you? You know.
1: Oh what, me playing coy. Oh, oh yeah, me yeah. playing coy is always fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, no it, it, it wasn't it wasn't like a it wasn't really a challenge to do it. It's it, kind of part of being you know in entertainment is knowing how to not talk about things and sound like you're talking about things because mm-hmm. um, you're gonna have to do that, right? Because you know, uh, I've recently over the past like three years, I've worked on things. That have had uh, rabid fan bases mm-hmm. that are looking to get the scoop, looking to get to Reddit with it, looking to turn it into something. You know, I was working on Ash vs Evil Dead*, I did a, the last season of that show, and then I was on *Titans* um, before. You know, the, te- te- the the detective thing came mm-hmm. in there. So, I, you know, you just get, get kind of get used to the political doublespeak around things. Sure. I, I didn't want people. People asked me as soon as the first issue came out, and I didn't know if I was doing Outsiders or not. So I didn't want to make it seem like I was doing it, uh, and then look like you know a liar when it was revealed that I wasn't doing it. But I also didn't want to disqualify myself by seeming disinterested. So that was a bit of a <laughs> a, a, a like a razor walk that that you have to do. Um, but but yeah, I was I was glad when. They finally made the announcement, so I could talk honestly to the readers that uh, I, you know, I've been chatting with online for a so long.
2: Well, since we we're talking about chatting about the outsiders, um, yeah. I am a little curious. Can you talk about, you know, the team dynamic as we're going into the series? I mean, these characters in the Rebirth era don't have a lot of the history they did pre-Flashpoint. And I mean Cassandra is fairly new to the whole superhero thing. So is Duke. Mm-hmm. And so how many of these characters were you sort of like, I want to use this, 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 and this. And how many were DC being like, well, I mean, you've already said, you know, Black Lightning was something they were talking to you about. But aside from that, mm. who else was kind of in your mix?
1: Well, it, it, all, it first started with the, the tone of the book and what it was going to feel like. And my initial concerns um, or it was going to just be another team book with with Batman in it. And there are a lot of team books because I knew about the Justice League books that were coming out, uh, that Scott was shepherding. And uh, you know, Red Hood and the Outlaws and, and all of that. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of team books. If this is just another kind of hop-along gang book, I don't think that's particularly unique. And uh, I'm not sure if readers have extra room uh for for that. But if this is a team book with the safety off, then it's interesting because it's a little different. So we first started talking about um the conflict within the team and not making it like, well, five issues of detective happened, everyone loves each other. now they're gonna go fight evil, <laughs> right? Um, that's it, it that wasn't really the thing. It, it's i'm I'm always interested in characters that are, Still headed towards their final form, as it were, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think Black Lightning is like that. I think Cassandra Cain is like that. The Signal is like that. I think in some ways Katana is even like that. So we just talked about those things, you know, those uh, a book about um, characters that were a little uh, uh, edgier, um, you know, that that were a little volatile, um, you know, characters that if you shake them up they might explode. And what would that be like? And then being put into a high pressure uh, framework, like the outsiders is dealing with the kinds of things that Batman asked people to deal with, you know, without a Diana, without a Clark, uh, you know, to kind of guide them, right? Without the obvious comic relief, you know, of a flash, you know, to, to see them through or the, the stalwart wisdom of Martian Manhunter. You know, they're removed from all that stuff. Uh, It's a bit of a renegade group. And that was interesting because that felt like, ooh, this could be a little different. Um, So, yeah, so we talked about Cassandra Cain because I'm a huge fan. I love that character. Oh, me too. Uh, And then, you know, and then bringing Duke in and doing some things with him. And I got some really interesting things when doing with Duke. Um, Because I got... uh, I think there's some ceiling there to work with. And I talked to Scott about it, and talked to Tony about it, uh, uh, Tony Patrick about mm-hmm. it. And, um, you know, and they were like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. that sounds great. Go ahead and do that. And then Katana, you know, is some a classic member of the Outsiders. Uh, but I told Dan, because one of the questions that, that DC had was, well, how is Katana different than Cassandra Cain? And I'm like, well, I see Cassandra Cain as more of a hand-to-hand combatant. Uh, she's certainly solely in the realm of the physical. She's good at recon. Um, she is the closest to like a true, um, ninja in the group, you know, although her origins are like Shiva and of Chinese work there. Um, but Katana is almost like the mystic on the group, you know, mm. and, and, and I haven't seen that approach with her, but she does have this. <laughs> soul sword that has her husband's spirit in it so Mm -hmm. that ties into japanese magic that ties into kind of the unknown or the less discussed aspects of japanese culture their their magic their their sorcery um and how that ties into shinto and how that ties into bushido and and the relationship between the samurai and and the spirit world as it works in in japan and i'm like well that's what what interests me i mean she's in, in some ways, she's uh, like a more ethical version of uh, almost like an Asajj Ventress or something. You know, like a character like that. Like there are are, are things you can explore that haven't been explored yet. And Aww. every other character in that group is very rational. So... I was like, yeah, I think I want to kind of explore the mystic aspects of uh, who Katana is, especially in the context of what's happening in in Tiny and Justice League Dark. And how is that going to affect what's going on with the Outsiders? How is that going to affect the Soul Sword? Right. Uh, And uh, Dan heard that and was like, okay, that sounds cool. Because I guess that was a new thing. I guess people hadn't, you know, thought about her in that way.
2: yeah, I can't think of any time where Katana has been treated as a tr- as part of the mystical pantheon of the DC universe. That's really fascinating. I also like the comparison to Ventress. I'd never thought of those two characters as a one to one before, but it's an interesting take.
1: Well, I try to to think about the characters as real people, and if I was Katana and I had that that artifact, and my husband's spirit was in it. I would become fluent in Japanese mysticism because I'd want to know the ways and the means of all this stuff. I'd want to know the answers to the mysteries uh, um, because I couldn't just walk with that weapon at my side and its power and its history and its potential danger without really understanding what was going on. I would seek out the ancient texts. You know. I would seek out the scrolls. I would try to find the words and the experience of the masters. So it just seemed organic to me to have that be an aspect of her character along with everything else. Huh.
2: Also, since you said, you know, Katana and Black Lightning are two of the traditional original outsiders, the end of that last issue, setting up Markovia, that mm. rings very a very clear bell for those of us who know the outsiders, as Markovia made its first appearance in Batman and the Outsiders number one, the original.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, and and I'll I'll say that was sort of me anticipating some kind of outsiders thing happening, regardless of whether or not I'd be working on it. And I I wanted to um, tie the villain into something we hadn't really seen in the post rebirth world, uh, and and have it be unique and open up the world a little bit. Like when you're working on legacy characters and you're you know, carrying the football for a few plays before you toss it off to somebody else. I think about leaving more opportunity on the table than was there when I got there, right? So like the next guy has, or next girl, you know, has uh, stuff to work with, you know, stuff to use. And I didn't know what villains were going to be on the chessboard with Tom's work because Tom... You know, you don't know where he's going to come from, man. Like, Tom could turn the Clock King into an Eisner-winning villain, so you have no idea what's going to happen.
2: Right?
1: <laughs> it's you why know, like, like Kite Man Hell
0: Yeah is now a catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, like,
1: Dark Side is. Like, so the Tom is just on that Tom <laughs> King jam. So um, I didn't want to have to bother him. Like, can I do this? Can I use this? Can we go here? Can I do that? Um, so I was like, well, I guess I'll create a villain. And uh, because you have Black Lightning in the story you you need a villain who is a little more physical, at least for that arc. I mean, there is a story with Batman and Black Lightning where Mr. Zazz is the villain. And, you know, he's killed someone in Metropolis and and Lightning knows, like, oh, wait a minute, this is a Batman guy, I need to go to Metropolis, I need to go to Gotham and find out what to do with it. And you could do that story, where it's Black Lightning wading into a detective story with Bruce Wayne trying to figure out what's going on and catch Mr. Zazz. Um, but... I, I'm introducing these characters, interacting in a way. And that didn't seem like the proper tone. If I'm going to have Cassandra Cain in it, if I'm going to have Duke Thomas in it, you know, like, that it just seemed like I need more kineticism, inherent kineticism. Um, I can do like seven with Batman and Black Lightning at some other point in, in my career. But uh, this is uh, a, a job for somebody that can punch face good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that's where karma came out of. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you you know, then I was like, well, I kind of need to find some technology that makes him competitive with a guy like Black Lightning, because Black Lightning has a lot of power, and got to manage that, and then it just all started to kind of bubble up to the surface. I'm a huge Ian Fleming fan. Um, I love like fantasy spy stuff. I'm not big into actual espionage narratives like John Le Carre. I mean, I respect it a lot, and I did like Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy a lot, but that that's homework like you know yeah. those movies hang on a file being delivered by hand uh by some young man in a pea coat in 1948 and i appreciate all of that but uh i like you know sharks with laser beams <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm like a goldfinger kid you know i was raised on like when i was when i was a kid they used to play Bond movies on Saturdays, uh, and you would just, you know, Saturday morning when the cartoons would all end, then they would go into a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, I would watch these Bond movies, and, and that's how I saw them. It's kind of on TV. So I, I was like, well, let's, let's put like a little James Bond behind the muscle. Uh, and I, I have a, a way I like to approach villains, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, where you sort of split the villainy into two parts. And, uh, you have the fist and then you have the will, right? And the, the will is the one in charge kind of calling the shots, uh, on things. And the fist is the, the weapon being wielded against the hero. You can see that in the Darth Vader Moff Tarkin relationship, you know, and then in empire, you can see that between vader and the emperor and then also between vader and boba fett in some ways and what the megatron starscream dynamic of it and what that <laughs> what that allows is you get like the sort of the mystery of the greater machinations but you also get a a physical villain who's who's there to provide a very physical threat to the uh, as a kind of a, a complement to the more uh, amorphous you know, kind of uh, a mastermind threat that you might deal with. And like, that's, that sounded like, yeah, that's, that's a way to go. And so then Martina Dementieva, the arms dealer that sold Karma, uh, that helmet from the alien technology that she's acquired from the remnants of a brainiac event, uh, that, that that seemed like the right direction to go a little intrigue. She's like a little sexy she's evil. Like, what is she all about? And, and you know, I don't want to make her from Detroit. So it seemed like, oh, this is a cool place to bring in Markovia because it's an undefined place. Uh, it's, there are two spaces, two places in the Batman mythos that you can kind of shape and mold them, but they still have significance to the reader, right? And one mm-hmm. of them is Markovia and the other is Corto Maltese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, well, between Corto Maltese and Markovia, I'd rather do Markovia.
0: Okay. Um, as far as, as, you know, Batman himself, you know, we've talked about supporting cast and and, and villains and whatnot. Uh, you know, how much do you, is there a are there discussions, you know, when you're kind of pitching with editorial about things you can and can't do in so far as imperiling Batman just because of whatever is going on in, in, you know, Tom King's title or, you know, do you still get free reign because he's Batman and he's going to get out of it anyway?
1: um not not really rules given to me by dc i mean Mm -hmm. i had some rules i imposed on myself
0: okay
1: i i i wanted there to be a sense of emotional continuity between tom's book and detective but i i didn't want to directly engage the selena kyle of it all sure uh so i talked to tom about it and i told him what my perspective was i said you know when you've got this incredible aspect of your life that's scaring you because you don't know where it's going to take you. And you've got massive change on the horizon. And for a guy like Bruce Wayne, you know, Selina Kyle isn't really something he can control, right? Uh, and he's, he's exposing a lot of himself uh, in, in this process of love. I, I felt like he'd want to exert control somewhere else. Uh, and the, the work he's doing with Jefferson Pierce with black lightning to me was Bruce creating a scenario completely separate from all of the stuff he was going through with Selena, where he could still exert that control, uh, where, uh, he wouldn't be asked about it because Jefferson wouldn't know about it. Right. So it, it, it complemented to me at least, what Tom was doing without directly referencing it. I mean, the only kind of, you know, bleak reference I have to it is uh, there's a moment when Batman forces karma to see all of his thoughts, and one of those thoughts is, is Catwoman, you know, licking her lips. Uh, but beyond that, I, I didn't want to make it directly, like, you know, connected to, the, to where the reader is thinking about it all the time. But knowing that people usually buy more than one bat title, you know, when they buy a bat title, I didn't want them to have an experience in Tom King's book and then come over to to Detective, and it was like, you know, Batman sleeping with someone else and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like Vicki Vale, like what's happening? You know? <laughs> Bounce back quick, <laughs> right? Like so, yeah. So that was um that was a rule that I imposed on myself. I I and this is just how I feel about it. This isn't a DC edict, but. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like if you're gonna have multiple Batman titles on the shelf, they should each accomplish something a little different. And yeah. Detective, when I was growing up, Detective Comics was detective comics. It wasn't the 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 book you'd read expecting the big, big events and a lot of a lot of action. But you would get a mystery. You would get a decent mystery in detective comics. You know, you deal more with the cops and uh, consequence and all that, and then the bigger stuff would happen in Batman. Um, but now Detective has become a bit of a team book, uh, and it's the counterpoint to Batman, which is now the more psychological, uh, I think, mm-hmm. um, character study book uh, among the Bat books. So I had to preserve the aspects of the team I didn't want people that were following James Tynian to suddenly get this completely different experience, didn't feel connected to anything they'd been reading. Um, but – I also wanted to find my own way in, you know, and I am really interested in consequence in stories. So I uh, I wanted to deal with that inst- and then create a story that happened with average people in it. One of my pet peeves about superhero books is too often it turns into gods fighting evil gods with people just sort of around in the periphery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but But they're not – connecting with us. We're not part of that story anymore. You know, the hell mouth gets opened, everyone goes through, there's a Hydra in there speaking, every head speaks in a different language, and then, you know, someone can figure out that if you take one word from each language and put it all together, it's the curse that'll send the Hydra back into the hell mouth. Simultaneously, somebody's doing their taxes. (laughs) Right? (laughs)
2: Right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: completely unaware of all of this, right? Like, like, you know, we're just not involved in that in any way. And one of the things I really loved about the Nolan films uh, was how they made it feel like it was happening in a world that you could relate to, like you had a role to play in this narrative. And that was something that I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to bring it back uh, into that space. So you see a lot of innocent people in danger. In in my run of detective, uh, you know, you get the role of the media a little bit in detective and I'm constantly checking in with the pulse of Gotham's citizenry, uh, as I'm telling the story. So you can get a sense that Gotham is a living and breathing place where these events are happening and it's affecting the climate of of the city itself. So those were the things that I, I wanted to do, but I never really got pushback. On anything um, uh, from DC uh, they were they were pretty pretty cool about just kind of letting me do what I what I needed to get done
0: uh, well that that is fantastic um, you know and and obviously you know not your not your first detective not is was not your first experience uh, with black lightning you know you got to write uh, black lightning Hong Kong phooey. uh
2: prior oh, to great. that
0: uh, hey. Madeline, hey. battle jumped in here
2: because <laughs> yeah, i also i have enjoyed a lot of those the recent the Hanna-Barbera DC the Looney Tunes DC but the, of that wave of those Hanna-Barbera DC's that Black Lightning Hong Kong Fui was an absolute highlight i loved the the different characters the different villains and i'm really curious if you know Hong Kong Fui is a character you were fami- if were familiar with if you pitched that as a, a concept, and what was it like to work with uh, Dennis Cowan and Bill Kevitz? I mean, those guys are both legends. I mean, Cowan, I've got a real soft spot from all the stuff he did with Denny O'Neill on the question. On the so question,
1: he, yeah, 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 for sure.
2: That's just such a cool. That's a cool book with all its sort of Eastern influences as well.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, first, thank you uh, for that. I appreciate that. um the So, I was working on Michael Cray, uh, and uh, Marie Javins was my editor on Michael Cray. And uh, I found out that she was also doing the Hanna-Barbera crossovers, or or she had been editing them or something. She was connected to it. She was a, a, a point of contact into that. So, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago, I brought up the idea of Hong Kong Fui, And she looked at me like I was crazy. She was like, Hong Kong Fui. There's... <laughs> Everything about him is problematic. PETA is going to get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even killing oh an God.
0: actual dog.
1: <laughs> yeah, like she just looked at me, just like, no, you know, just like, no, we're not, no. And I was like, but I have a really interesting take on it. And she's like, all right, we'll see you later on, later on. And then I was working on Titans uh, at the time. And then I got an email from Marie, and she was like, you know, if you still have that Hong Kong fooey thing, might want to go ahead and share it with Jim Chadwick over at DC because he might, you know, be interested in it. We were thinking about doing something, so I shared the idea with Jim. I, I met with Jim, who's great. Uh, Chadwick's awesome, and I told him I had this. I wanted to take it kind of seriously and make it feel like the '70s era, you know, exploitation crime kung fu movie, like dun 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 dun, <laughs> you know, like all oh, the whole thing, and. Uh, he immediately got what I was, what I was going for. And I put a, uh, a little pitch together on a piece of paper and I sent it over to Dan DiDio. And then I met with Dan in his office and Dan was like, Brian, this is pretty good, but I think you can make it even, even more absurd. Right. And cause I, I kinda, I kinda held back a little bit, you know, uh, and, and Dan wanted me to, to, to go forward. So then I went back to my, my home office and I, um. Uh, really put my crazy in there. And I found some art online that someone had done of Hong Kong fooey, but he was like jacked and <laughs> looking like real scary. Right. And so I sent that to, to Dan and I called it like legend of the God fist.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, like, really like what it, and then, you know, Dan read it. It was like, this is perfect. This is what we want to do. So, um, <laughs> Uh, Dan greenlit it, uh, that which is great. And then uh, I wanted, well, Maria that because Dennis was doing uh, covers on Michael Cray with Bill. So Dennis and Bill were already kind of working with me, but I wasn't in in like a lot of contact with them. Uh, but a huge admirer of the work. was, like, you know, I was talking about Letra Assassin before. Like I read mm-hmm. that thing once a month, and, and you know Dennis's work on the question, like you said, is is a huge influence uh, on on what I'm doing. And in fact, there's a couple pages in my detective run that are nods to. Uh, how Dennis did the fight scenes in the question. You know, it's like the, if you see a nine panel grid that looks like actual martial arts technique, that's me referencing Dennis's work in the question. Oh, wow. So uh, Dennis heard what it was and, and he was like, Hong Kong, Fooey, what? Pete is going <laughs> to be mad at you. Right. So uh, uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, but the, the God fist and the thing and then black lightning and there's a muscle car. And then, and then Professor Presto is going to get in there, and he's going to be corrupted by the ancient will of the godfist, and, and Hong Kong Fui will have to challenge his own nature. And he's like, all right, well, you're crazy, <laughs> but you seem to know what you want to do. So you write the script, <laughs> and I will, I will draw it after you write the script. Don't tell me anymore. I don't want to know anymore. Stop talking. <laughs> you write the script, and I, I will. I, I will deal with this, right? So, yeah, yeah, and that's that's where that that came from. And once I sent the script over, then I think Dennis uh, really saw what I was going for. You know, he got the whole like seventies uh, uh, kung fu vibe with a little bit of a, a little shaft in there, and and some other stuff, and 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 yeah, and pretty much he just you know, read it, understood it and then then executed it and it was it was great. Uh so yeah, so I'd written some black lightning before. I mean that black lightning is a bit more, you know, like hands up sucker. Like he's a little more around that vibe. But <laughs> for sure, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's it's definitely like a perfect uh you know, Wu Tang clan Satin Island Saturday matinee.
1: Uh oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, you know, it, it it's I, I see i grew up watching those things there's a, there's a video store in my neighborhood it was it wasn't a blockbuster it was like a mom and pop store mm-hmm. and one of the clerks was obsessed with like oh, kung fu movies weird deep cut kung fu movies from the late 60s and the 70s so i saw all of that stuff um and never knew what was going on in the movie <laughs> i don't know like like it was like watching a Sonny Chiba movie you know somebody did something and he has to go kick face and're like fine and that's the guy that needs to get the face kicked so we're gonna watch this go down uh but I used to just love the energy of that stuff and the purity of those experiences uh and I uh, wanted to evoke that in the book in like one issue um and it was a lot of fun to do.
0: That's awesome. Uh, You mentioned Michael Cray a bit ago, uh, the book where you get to systematically kill uh, evil members of the Justice League. Uh, You know, the obvious question here, of course, is how much fun is that? But I kind of wanted to see if you had a favorite uh, death uh, in the series uh, so far. Oh,
1: wow. Well, in terms of deaths, um, I kind of dig how Cray deals with a, a corrupt Barry Allen's super speed. Um, there's a bit in, I think issue four where you know, Barry is designed the suit that can make him run really fast because we're in the Warren Ellis version of all of this. So there's some plausibility kind of stitched through it. So he's got some sure. suit that can enhance his speed. And how do you deal with that? Well, he's like running after Michael and bursts into a room at super speed. Uh, and there's all these bright lights in the room that blind him and he can't see. But he's still moving very fast, so he crashes through a wall and goes through the building and lands in a in a van, and then Michael blows the van off because he rigged it with explosives. Um, and I was like, "That's pretty cool." I'd I'd walk away from that in slow motion and roll the credits. So <laughs> nice. That that was our Cray is an interesting book, man, because I was you know sort of familiar with the Wildstorm, uh, with Wild Storm, you know, growing up, but I wasn't like the biggest Wildstorm guy. Like you know, it's so so many books back then. And I knew Grifter because uh, he looked cool sure. and um, uh, that kind of thing. But I was, you know, also like reading X-Men and Cap and everything else. So I wasn't really fluent. But Warren had read a book I wrote called Romulus. Uh, that was my own book that had come out through Image Comics. And he liked that uh, and, and, you know, checked in with me about wanting to write uh, The Wildstorm. And I was like, well, I don't know a lot about Michael Cray. He's like, yeah, you don't have to because we're going to do a new thing. I was like, "Oh, that's right. You're Warren Ellis. You can do that." So uh, I was like, "Okay, cool." Um, and then I I know a couple people that make money with guns on their hip, so I was able to talk to them and get a bit more of that mindset. Uh, and then I, I did a little small arms training um, when I started this started the series just so I could get used to it. Okay. So I could understand what it was like because I'm I'm not a big gun guy, honestly. Uh, but I'm like, well, let me let me demystify this for myself so I can understand what it's like to trust that thing to save your life, right? Because what I would always hear from people is you know, you have to trust that your weapon's gonna work uh, and you have to have a connection to it and know how to clean it and the rest of it and I was like, ah, that seems like a pretty important aspect of Michael Cray as a guy so I should probably pick up some of that stuff so I did some small arms training at a gun range uh, here in Los Angeles and realized that guns terrify me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I, uh, I I did learn how to how to do it. I could put some bullets on target. Uh, and, and that helped get into the mindset of the character, you know, because it's – I had to get past my emotion around all of it, and I had to think about it like he would think about it. This is a tool, right? <laughs> like this is a, a tool in my hand that I will use. And he's going up against, you know, things that can obviously kill him. Uh, and so that helped. And then, yeah, and then I just started pinning that down. Um and and writing kind of from there. And so it was, it, it was interesting to be able to twist these Justice League characters and turn them into funhouse mirror versions of who they are. Uh, initially, the structure was I'd, I'd build one up, and then I would take one down, right, to kind of almost like two-issue stories, really. And then when I got to issue six, the last of the arc, of uh, that arc, I, um, I wanted to do something else. I, you know, I, I was toying with this idea of wonder woman but i i really wanted to explore this version of wonder woman you know mm-hmm. I, I wanted uh her to be someone obsessed with greek mythology who believes she has a bloodline like divine right to the the pantheon of greek gods and who wants to bring these gods back into the world so that she can reclaim her birthright mm-hmm. uh and I needed more time and more space to evolve that. And then I also wanted to bring in John Constantine. Um, since we were discussing like kind of mythology and magic and, and all of that, I'm like, well, what is John Constantine? What is he like in a Warren Ellis, you know, Wildstorm world? And Warren had, had obviously done some great work with Constantine before. Mm-hmm. So I think when he, when, he, when he heard that I wanted to do that, I think hearing evil John Constantine working with evil Diana Prince could like that connected for him in a way where where he was like yeah go ahead and do that spend more time and so the the back six is really that narrative and we've got some cameos uh, from other characters uh, that show up there and I'm really happy with the storytelling uh, in in that in that back six as a whole I think it makes a an interesting uh, kind of journey through that world.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, yeah. you mentioned the the small arts uh, training. You know, uh, in again, in sort of reading up, you know, you're, you've seen pretty, you know pretty method uh, in your research for American Carnage, your Vertigo series that's coming up uh, about a biracial FBI agent who infiltrates a white supremacist group. Uh, you know, you met, you, you've mentioned in previous interviews hanging out on, on white supremacist. That's true. I,
1: I became a white supremacist for about yeah. a year. <laughs> I... Full Jared Leto. No, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm. I'm, I, I'm actually Steve Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> how,
2: how much bleach have you run over your brain since then? Just curious. I, you know, it, it, seriously, it, I mean, like, what run, kind of stuff run. did you learn from that? Yeah.
1: Um, well, I'll tell you what, man. Like, I'm always researching things um, because I don't know if they're going to turn into stories or not. You know, so I don't start off like, I want to tell a story about this. So I'm going to research that. That's not how my mind works. <laughs> Usually it starts with, I'm interested in this. And I'm gonna research this and see if there's anything there for me uh, as a, as an artist to work with, whether it's you know uh, uh, you know uh, corporate raiding and and, and embezzlements and insider trading or private military companies, uh, you know, kind of working overseas or you know whatever it may be. And after the uh, uh, Dylan Roof attack,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I saw like this, just kind of a, the rise of the kinds of rhetoric and images that I had seen before in black and white film when I was in history class, but didn't really think I would see it as vibrant as I was seeing it. I mean, you know, you, you know, you grow up, you have experiences. I've had some negative experiences, but I never really like carried them around with me too long. Um, Cause I try not to see the world uh, through a prism of, of like racial identity uh, because that was the thing that I had nothing to do with.
2: <laughs> so so
1: I, I I tend to put more of my my uh, my my thoughts into the the choices I've made and the effect that they've they've had, you know. Um, and pretty open minded about culture in general. But in general, but um, I I just want I'm like, is this thing is this, is this happening? Like, is this real? Because you you know you you watch like a Vice magazine thing or you see an interview with a Richard Spencer or someone, right? Or, or Jared Jared Taylor or something, and you're thinking. I used to see these interviews and I used to just completely dismiss what they were saying because I thought it would be impossible for them to realize their vision of the world. And then things happened. And then suddenly it didn't seem so impossible anymore. Right? Like suddenly it seemed like, Oh no, maybe I don't know, this, this is going to go down. So I just, I thought I would jump in there. I didn't want to be scared of the whole thing. I don't like fear. So whenever I'm afraid of something, I tend to run towards it so I can not be afraid of it anymore. Uh, and I did have a, a, a friend that became a white supremacist uh, after we had, like, you know, kind of drifted apart uh, after you know, grade school. And that was kind of a weird thing. So, um, And my takeaway from that was how I know you. I grew up with you. We, we hung out together. Our families loved each other. What experiences did you go through that turned you into this? And – you know, you see someone who's gone through a tremendous change like that, and nothing of the person you remember is there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, well, wait a minute. Is that, is that every single one of these people with a tiki torch? Right? Are, 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 are they all someone's former friend that went a direction? Well, how? How does that happen? How does that happen in, in 2016, 2017, 2018? With all of the evidence to the contrary uh, of, of this being a positive thing for any anyone in America, how are people still being brought into this mindset? Who is doing this? How is this happening? Where are they getting from it? So I uh, went to message boards. Um, I'm not going to say which ones. I'm not trying to bring them more traffic, but they're not hard to find. And I uh, I, I think I started with YouTube. Uh, because, strangely enough, it's not, not very difficult to get to white supremacy on YouTube. You can basically get there in three video game reviews. Yeah, that sounds so. right. <laughs> like you, you catch the wrong video game review, and suddenly your algorithm is crazy. Yeah, no. and they will show up in your suggested viewing, yeah. Oh, man, like, oh you, you like that Dark Souls review? Well, how about Nazism? And like, That's the real Dark Souls.
2: I just watched, oh, yes. I watched.
1: I watched Sargon for ninety seconds before I knew what was happening. You know, <laughs> release my algorithm. Um, so, uh, uh I started with YouTube, and uh, um, strangely enough, I it, like it. Like, took me into like Joe Rogan for a second, and then I like, came back. <laughs> it is really weird, right? <laughs> so I started there, and and uh, uh say like, all right, I'm, I'm getting a lot of. I mean, I'm getting like propaganda, you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated people in their, in their bedrooms with a snowball mic in front of them, you know, shouting about whatever, this is not helping me. This isn't, this doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel true. So from then I went to message boards and I created a, you know, false identity and, uh, just went of the message boards and mostly just went there to kind of read posts. And then, uh, eventually I started interacting with people. Uh, kind of waded into it at a couple different identities i would use in case you know one of them would get like found out or something mm-hmm. and I never did it at home don't do kind of don't do this from your own ip address. Mm-hmm. i uh went to coffee shops and uh, used their wi-fi ports to to go ahead and do that uh and then i would have some conversations where i would i would pretend to be a person that was curious about the movement so i could get recruited i wanted to know what the indoctrination was like mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, I kind of made up a tale about uh, economic uh, difficulty and feeling a little lost and a little angry and feeling like other people were getting opportunities that I wasn't. That felt like a good, good uh, fertile soil for them to plant some seeds.
0: The old economic uh, anxiety.
1: The old economic anxiety thing. It's very sad. So. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I did that and then I, you know, I got some people that were like kind of re- trying to recruit and all that and I'm like, okay, I kind of see where this is going. Um, and then I left the message boards because I didn't want to take that too far down the path. Uh, but I talked to friends that were in both social work and law enforcement and asked them if I could meet with people. Uh, and uh, first I met with people that were formerly, you know, in these movements. Um, and I would ask those people, could I meet with someone who's actually still in the movement? Um, because I, I'm not going to learn everything I need to learn by, by talking to the post. I need to, I need to talk to the during. And I remember they were like, well, you know, they're going to say some, some words. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah." I listen to JC. I hear those words all the time. So, um, I, uh, uh, met with uh, people that were actually, you know, kind of in it and talked to them. And, you know, the, 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 the tricky part. Wasn't having the conversation because I talk to people that are intense a lot. It's just part of what I do as a writer. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to trigger me emotionally. I mean, you can some people like rain slurs down uh, on me, I think, to see what I would do. And I was like, well, I'll just sit here and wait for you to finish so I can get to your point. But the the tricky part was getting them to realize that I wasn't setting a trap. I wasn't recording anything. I wasn't trying to make them look bad. You know, like all those, I wasn't the evil liberal media that was coming in to do, 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 do. and I was like, no, the reason I'm talking to people is I'm, I'm going to tell this story and I want it to be accurate and authentic to the people in this movement. I am not trying to tell a story of cartoons. Um, you know, I'm trying to tell a story about people who've made choices and eventually, not in all cases, but in some cases, the, the resistance would break down. And they would go, go into that natural state of wanting to connect with the human being that's sitting across from you because that's what people want to do, mm-hmm. right? Unless you have tons of external pressure, uh, you will try to relate to the person that's closest to you. It's why, you know, if you're sitting next to someone that's semi-attractive on a long flight and you're single, by the end of the flight, you're obsessed <laughs> right? because it's just proximity, right? You know, we're, we're social creatures. It's a natural state of being. Sure. Uh, um, so, and then I would hear things that were almost universal feelings underneath, like the targeted anger and all of that. Cause anger is just fear in a disguise. Sure. So anytime you see anger, you're just looking at fear. So the, the key is, well, what's the fear about? And, you know, it's like the same kind of like fears of, of, What they're going to be in the future about about how masculinity is being defined about um economic viability what's happening in their town you know a lot of these conversations were in missouri some of them were here in the west coast but others were missouri where i'm from uh and so you know you you start to realize okay there is some universality there and i can see how people would group together into this kind of thing and find self-esteem from all of this uh, but what really surprised me were how there are factions within the factions. It was like the respectability faction. Like, I think I put like Richard Spencer in the respectability quotient. You know, right. like we're going to mm-hmm. we're gonna kind of use some pomade and iron our shirts and try to make this, you know, more palatable. Uh, and then you still have, you know, the bleep kickers that are uh, out there, you know, that want to just be scary. You're, you know, you're American History X types. American history X are Derek Vinyard types, right? They're, they're out there. You have the Aryan Brotherhood, which I didn't actually meet with because everyone across the board, whether they called me a slur when they said it or not, was like, "Don't meet with Aryan Brotherhood because they may kill you." Uh, mm-hmm. and and they're they're the intense ones. They're the ones that are in the prisons. Uh, there's also a criminal enterprise portion of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, weapons dealing, narcotics. Uh, uh, killing for hire, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So I left them alone because <laughs> <laughs> this is just gonna be a funny book. Ain't no reason to get shot over a funny. Book. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I left that alone, but I heard some stuff, you know, about that. I told everyone, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna use your name. I'm not gonna speak about your specific group. I'm not going to. Uh, draw any specific attention to you or your organization. I'm just trying to understand it because i got to make fictional versions of all this stuff. Um, and I, I still didn't know if it was going to be a comic or whatever it was going to be. But, I, you know, and then I had all, had all this research and I started to kind of pin down the story. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've wanted to tackle my experience growing up in a narrative at some point. And I'm, you know, I'm like black, black. So I look very black. But, uh, when I was going to school, I was a scholarship kid. So I didn't have a lot of money. My family didn't have a lot of money, but all my friends had a lot of money. And when I was growing up, I felt like I was stuck between worlds because I would have like trust fund friends during the day. And then I would go back to my little house and the bills and the problems at night. And it felt a lot like being undercover in a way. You know, because you, you want to avoid the shame of poverty. Because uh, I was literally walking around in high school wondering if I was the poorest kid in that high school. And I quite likely was the poorest kid in that high school. And I had a lot of shame about that because uh, I could see how different, you know, my lifestyle was compared to theirs. And that led to feelings of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I was kind of covering that up and dealing with that. So I've, I've wanted to find a story where I could wrestle with those emotions, if not literally allegorically. And that's when it all sort of came together. Like, oh, well, my grandmother had a really light skin. And there was a while where she passed for white. And I was always fascinated with that aspect of her story. And if if that could happen to a guy today and I put that guy in this world, now we're starting to get something that feels like a narrative that's interesting. And if and if the The supremacy aspects weren't cartoonish, but they were uh, articulated with soul and, dare I say, heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if I could get a reader to sympathize with people that they objectively would hate normally, um, now I'm doing something. Now we're sort of getting into the marrow of how all this stuff works, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm like, well, that could be an interesting, interesting story. I thought it might be a novel, uh, maybe, um, or something like that. And then Vertigo reached out to me, uh, Mark Doyle and Andy Curry, and uh, Jamie Rich reached out and said, hey, Brian, do you have anything for Vertigo 25th Anniversary? And I was like, well, I got this thing I'm working on. Um, I think I'm going to call it American Carnage. You don't want to do it, because everyone's going to get mad at you. But I'll send it to you, you'll tell me no, and then I'll send back a pitch about like a werewolf that does heroin and goes through a dimensional portal who's also a stand-up comedian like, I'm we'll to get stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: yeah. We'll, we'll do that we'll do that book you know and uh so i was you know i sent the pitch off and i was working on funny wolf and <laughs> they sent me an email and they're like hey man we really want to do this and i was like are you sure because i gotta use a whole lot of words in this book <laughs> Like, like this is gonna—I'm telling you—everyone's going to be mad at you. You're not—it's not just like the people over here. Like the people over there, here and there, they're going to be mad at you. Uh, just be prepared for that. Um, and they're really like, no, you know, that's the Vertigo spirit and the rest of it. And I spoke to Brian Azzarello, and Azzarello was like, yeah, you should—you should do this. Uh, Jeff Johns encouraged me to do it. Uh, I talked to him when I was working on Titans, mm-hmm. and before I made the decision, I was like, Jeff, you know, they—they—they want to do this book, but man. You know this reason, that reason, this reason, that reason, and he's like, "Well, those are all the reasons you should do it." And I was like, "All right, well, Jeff Johns said to do it, so you know, I'm not gonna tell Jeff Johns no." Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's where it came from. We have, uh, um, you know, Leandro Fernandez uh, on the colors, um, and we have Dean White. I mean, on the pencils, we have Dean White in the colors, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I think Pat Russo is doing letters. We have a. Uh, um, Ben, oh, I forgot, oh, I forgot Ben's last name. I'm blanking on. I'm terrible with names. Um, but he's a brilliant uh, Oliver, Ben Oliver, uh, doing the covers. Oh yeah, and yeah. Those are those are great. Um, and so between Leandro and Dean and uh, and Ben and and Pat, we've got a really great team. I think working on it. and the first issue comes out in November. I'm really excited for people to, to get their hands on it uh, because I don't think it's what people expect it to be. I mean it's really a crime story ultimately. You know, yeah. A story about a guy who's going undercover to find out who killed an FBI agent. But in all of that, you know, there's the seduction of power, the question of identity. We question whether or not the FBI should be doing what they're doing. I mean the, the, the may or may not be villain at the center of this when Morgan is a private citizen. So should the FBI be wielding this kind of off-the-books power against a private citizen just because they're suspicious? Is that okay? Is it okay because his views may be distasteful? You know, is that okay? Well, then how do you apply that? And when do you not apply that? You know, what are the rules around that stuff? So, yeah, it's it's like a HBO series, an FX series on paper. But it's also put through the fever dream execution that only comics can do. Uh, and I'm really excited to uh, get that in people's hands.
2: Yeah, it, it feels of a piece with another one of my, my personal favorite Vertigo series, which is Jason Aaron's Scalped.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, Scalped was mm-hmm. – there's an issue of Scalped, and I want to say it's 74. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's 74. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a self-contained story about this couple that's very poor. Uh, on the reservation.
2: Yeah, and, I know the issue you're talking about. And they're
1: dealing with their poverty, right? And there's not enough to eat. And they're going through the seasons of it, and their love is getting fractured because of their poverty and the whole thing. And that that issue left me in tears when I read it. And I I'd never been affected by a comic book like that before. And I tell Jason this all the time. Every time I talk to Jason, I tell him he's probably tired of hearing the story. <laughs> but uh, it really affected me. Um, and I I've always kept that experience in mind. And and I've loved as well the work of Brian Azzarello. you know, not just 100 Bullets, which I do love, but I also love Loveless.
2: Oh, uh, Loveless is so underrated.
1: Yeah, I like I thought it was fantastic, especially the Marcello Fruzen uh, 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 issues of that. Words lyrical and beautiful. I think it was a little before its time. Loveless. Uh, yeah,
2: I agree entirely.
1: I don't think people were quite ready for a western that was. Such a deconstructionist, almost like a Terrence Malick experience in a way, uh, but brutal, you know. Uh, at the same time, but a huge fan of of that that book, and and I, I talked to Mark and and Andy over at Vertigo, and I told them as much as I love the work of Neil Gaiman, and Alan Moore, you know, um, and, and you know Garth, my Vertigo was the crime Vertigo, you know, my Vertigo was scalped, it was hundred bullets, you know, it's loveless. Like those are the works that meant something to me uh with the vertical label so if you don't have anything like that then maybe yeah maybe maybe this is this is could be that book inside the pantheon of the of the books that are coming out and i think we are the only true crime drama in in this lineup uh so it's an interesting and unique place to be
0: uh, yeah that that is awesome and I'm, I'm very much uh you know looking forward to, to reading american carnage uh brian we've we've kept you an hour uh you know we always ask our guests as we're as we're wrapping up how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed
1: well it's funny you bring that up i hate the word follower because (laughs) it's like this stupid corporate marketing thing that's making our children worse so uh i i have people that i interact with online Mm -hmm. and if you would like more direct interaction, then I guess you can click that infernal button. I'm on Twitter. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: it is at Brian Edward Hill. Uh, it's Brian with a Y. At Brian Edward Hill. I keep my DMs open. If you have questions about writing, obviously I can't get into spoilers and the stuff I'm working on. But I've got a pretty nice community. I don't have that many followers. There's like ten thousand or something. But uh, I I talk to people when I can on a regular basis uh, because I'm either doing research or something or just kind of jotting notes down. And I have a lot of positive conversations. and i'm I'm really proud of the the way that I've got Democrats, you know, socialists, Republicans, communists, whatever. Uh, and we all talk about storytelling and writing, and then we're not uh, waging ad hominem attacks against each other. Uh, and I work hard to present an online presence that is both authentic to me and a positive place to be. So Twitter's the best place to find me. Uh, If you want to kind of holler at me about something. Um, And then I also have a YouTube channel called The Hill Administration. Um, And that channel is really just me talking about writing and writing technique. I get a lot of questions about writing online. And I used to just answer them. First, I would just answer them one by one in DM. But then you write Detective Comics and you get way too many (laughs) questions. (laughs) You know, I've been writing a long time. been a professional writer, like, man, probably about, about 12, 15 years, but... My, all of my work has usually been under the radar, you know, and, uh, you know, screenplays, TV, whatever. But, you know, once you start doing like Batman, then suddenly you're in a whole new world of interaction. Sure. So I created a YouTube channel where every Monday I will post a video that answers what I think is one of the top questions I get about writing. So it'll be about like technique, um, it could be about business stuff. Uh, sometimes I'll talk about my individual books on, on the uh, YouTube channel. I think there's an American Carnage video up that goes into more depth about the history of the book, you know, what I was talking about in this podcast. So yeah, that so hopefully people,
0: under yeah. the suggested videos does not start showing you white supremacist videos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just might, man. I mean, occasionally <laughs> I still watch Joe Rogan and I'll just take you to some weird, weird places, bro. Like, <laughs> you know, you get like Joe Rogan, a keto video and then suddenly I'm burning crosses. I don't know what's happening. Um, no no shade thrown to Joe Rogan. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. He just happens to have a couple hashtags that, you know, make it difficult uh, if you're just going to let it autoplay. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can find me on YouTube, The Hill Administration. Uh, and again, it's, it's really just me talking about writing and writing technique. I consider that the best free resource that I can offer people who are interested in the craft of writing because I think it's criminal that in order to get uh, taught by people who actually are professional writers, you have to go to these incredibly expensive programs, Mm -hmm. which are prohibitive to so many people, or you have to buy overpriced books or, you know, hundred dollar masterclasses. Uh, and I'm not an authority on anything, but I do pay my rent and I live in LA. So put that together and I can share my experience with people. uh, and hopefully they can tell their own stories and, um, you know, realize their own visions, uh, uh, through that. So, yeah, expect new videos there every Monday, and um, that is and we'll look out for Batman and the Outsiders uh, this December. So I make you feel really bad in November with American Carnage, but then I bring you back in December with a Batman story. So there you go.
0: That's the way to do it, Brian. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us. Thank you for having me. It was a joy to be here. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and, and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA! W-M-Q.